Hello, and welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler, and today's episode is going to be a special solo episode. And the reason for that, uh, if you've been following along the last few episodes, we are doing a bit of a special series of episodes leading into the new year, uh, because obviously this is a time where people are really getting ready to set a bunch of new goals and hopefully start making some really big strides toward those goals. So in this series, what we've been trying to do is just kind of work from the beginning and cover a lot of the foundational information that someone needs when they're either just getting into fitness or if they're really getting ready to revamp and kind of revitalize their approach to fitness uh, as the new year begins. So for example, we've already done an episode covering goal setting. Then we did an episode covering motivation and behavior change. And uh, you might remember back in episode 103, Greg did a segment on misapplications of popular weight loss advice. Today's episode is going to be different, but it's kind of in the same vein as that uh, episode 103 segment. So in today's episode, I'm going to cover some of the most common questions about weight loss diets. Uh, And so one of the things that's uh, interesting about, about the podcast is we have often lamented uh, very publicly that sometimes our episodes get very long, right? And so sometimes someone will come to us and say, hey, I, where do I find information to get me started with this particular goal? And sometimes you have to say, well, there's a two-hour episode on this topic and a two-hour episode on that topic. And you start putting together this list of what they would need to kind of go through to get started. And you start to say, okay, well, that's that's about 14 hours worth of material. It's kind of a kind of a heavy lift to give someone when they're uh, just trying to kind of get a comprehensive idea of how to get started. So this episode, like I said, I'm going to cover a lot of common questions about weight loss diets. Uh, the reason being, uh, around the new year, a lot of people do tend to target weight loss as a goal. It doesn't make weight loss better or worse than any other fitness goal you might have, but it's a really common one. So we wanted to do an episode where we tie together a lot of topics that we've covered in the past. So these are topics that we might have entire episodes or really long segments about them where we really dive in and drill down on some of the the really nuanced details of you know where these concepts come from, uh, mechanistically, whether or not there's a basis for them, uh, whether or not they have supporting evidence in the scientific literature, and in some cases, what our anecdotal experiences are. So for today's episode, like I said, we're going to be talking all about a bunch of very common uh, questions pertaining to weight loss diets. Now, before I get into that, as always, if you like the show and you'd like to support it, there are many ways you could do that. Uh, first, you could like, rate, or subscribe wherever you happen to get podcasts. Uh, another thing you could do is join our email newsletter. If you go to strongerbyscience.com newsletter, you can sign up there, and we do send out research spotlights. Uh, they're they're uh, basically very short reviews of recent research, they go out every Wednesday straight into your inbox, and we try to make sure that they're very practical. It's our little brief research update that you can really use and put into action. Another thing you could do is check out our coaching program. We have a lot of really excellent coaches at Stronger by Science who do one-on-one virtual coaching. Uh, you can learn more about that program at strongerbyscience.com coaching. You can use our discount code at bulksupplements.com. The discount code is SBSPOD, S-B-S-P-O-D, and that gets you a 5% discount off of your entire order. And then finally, 
you could subscribe to the Mass Research Review, or you could check out Macro Factor. Uh, of course, Macro Factor is the diet app uh, that Greg and I co-developed with a really talented team of people. Uh, it's a really fantastic diet app, uh, very efficient, very convenient food logging workflows, really, really fantastic energy expenditure algorithm. Uh, it's got kind of built-in coaching functionality, so it helps guide you along the process, whether your goal is to gain weight, lose weight, or maintain weight. So Mass Research Review, Macro Factor, you can check out both, and we think you'll like them. Uh, all right, so let's dive into some of these common questions about weight loss diets. Uh, I think the first one that you have to cover in a conversation like this is, how do I actually set and adjust calorie targets? Now, if you go to strongerbyscience.com diet, it is a very, very long article that gets really into detail about how to set up a diet from start to finish. It covers how to set and adjust your calorie targets, uh, how to identify macro targets. And it doesn't just tell you how to do it or what to do. It also goes into a lot of detail about the evidence underlying uh, the various targets and recommendations. So um, this show, in the show notes, there's gonna be a lot of resources that are linked. Uh, and that'll give you an opportunity to, to take a much deeper dive into whichever topics you'd like to really, uh, really key in on and dig into some of those nuanced details. So when it comes to setting and adjusting calorie targets, there are three primary methods that people like to use. Uh, one that is less common these days, especially in the evidence-based fitness world, is to simply start with an assumption of your calorie needs based on your goal and to roll with it, you know? So you would set a calorie target and just let it ride. And that would be your calorie target for the entirety of your, your cutting phase, your bulking phase, whatever you happen to be doing. Uh, and once again, in this episode, I'm gonna focus uh, specifically on weight loss goals just because of the time of year and statistically it tends to be a very common goal. So if you look at the medical weight loss literature, this is actually an approach that's taken really, uh, really frequently. So it's not uncommon at all to open up a study where instead of individualizing weight loss diets, the research team might just say, hey, we're going to put everyone on an 800 calorie diet and that's the diet, or we're going to put them on a thousand or 1200 calorie diet. But in many cases, you will see dietary interventions in the literature where they just say, hey, 800 calories should be low enough to do it. They give the, the diet, usually if, it, if it's a very low calorie diet like that, they'll actually uh, provide either all the foods. In many cases, there's going to be a lot of supplementation involved, like a liquid kind of protein shake-based uh, diet. But that's a really popular approach in the medical literature. Um, but another thing that's really popular in the medical literature is very, very high rates of weight regain, uh, very high rates of weight regain after those protocols are done. You know, So one of the challenges with that type of intervention, or I guess one of the shortcomings, I would say, is when you just tell someone, here is your diet. You give them a big box of protein shakes and you say 800 calories a day. You literally have to do this uh, for the next 12 weeks. Uh, over those 12 weeks, absolutely. Th those people are very likely to lose a substantial amount of weight, but they have not built any new skills pertaining to weight loss or weight maintenance. They have not created any new behaviors uh, pertaining to weight loss or weight maintenance. It's kind of this uh, intervention in a box. They hand it over. Here's your food for the next 12 weeks. 
And for a short time frame, people can can often make that work. Uh, you know, when you look at these studies in the literature, in most cases, there is significant weight loss that occurs. Um, however, it doesn't seem to be particularly uh, sustainable. But even out in the real world, outside of those study contexts, there are major shortcomings of this general approach of just taking an assumed calorie target and sticking with it for the duration of your diet. Um, so before I get into some of those shortcomings, uh, what kind of targets are common? It's a really important question to ask. Uh, a lot of times when people are trying to maintain their weight and they're taking this approach of just guessing a number, usually they're going to aim somewhere around 15 kilocalories per pound of body weight. So they calculate their weight in pounds, multiply it by 15, and that's how many calories a day they're going to be eating. Uh, a moderate cut might be around 13 calories per pound, and a pretty aggressive cut might be all the way down at 11 calories per pound. Now, if you talk to a physique athlete who is really late in their contest preparation, really late in that timeline, and they're pushing really hard, you know, their, their diet is as restrictive as it's going to get during that prep phase, absolutely, you're going to see people whose calorie target is below 11 calories per pound, no question at all. Um, so those are just kind of basic heuristics. Um, and, and a lot of times that's when bodybuilding coaches, if they are kind of double checking themselves to say, am I being too restrictive here? Sometimes they will actually kind of calculate how many calories per pound are we eating here? And does that seem like an appropriate value? So in many cases, 11 to 13 calories per pound is going to be a place where someone sets their calorie target and they just leave it. And they say for the, I'm going to do a cut for four months and I'm going to eat this much a day for the next four months. Now, there are, like I said, issues with this approach. Um, in the worst case scenario, it's just simply not going to be an appropriate calorie target. Um, there is a great deal of variation in terms of the energy needs from person to person uh, that can be impacted by things that are somewhat predictable. Uh, so for example, uh, the best predictor we have of somebody's uh, resting metabolic rate, for example, is going to be fat-free mass. Uh, so you know that is something that we know is going to dictate some of the variation for energy needs when we compare one person to another. A person with higher fat-free mass is likely going to have higher energy needs and they should have a different calorie target when, when they're cutting weight or, or trying to do a weight loss or fat loss phase. Um, so like I said, there, the, the worst case scenario is that because there is variation, I mean, fat-free mass is one variable that can dictate these things, but it's one of many. Um, even people with the same exact fat-free mass, uh, there was a study by Ponser and colleagues uh, not too long ago, within the last year or two, it was a study from a doubly labeled water database where they could look at total daily energy expenditure in free living people. Uh, and also they looked at resting energy expenditure as well. But they were looking at these metabolic outcomes in free living people and looking at it across the lifespan, looking at various predictors for what a person's energy needs are. Uh, Fat-free mass was the biggest predictor of energy needs, but it was certainly not a perfect predictor. So even people with the same fat-free mass had very, very different energy needs and therefore their energy target uh, or their calorie target during a weight loss diet uh, should be different. So worst case scenario, you choose one of these kind of assumed targets and it simply may never be the right target for you. 
Um, so for example, it might be way higher than it ought to be for that individual, and they will stick to that calorie target and simply not achieve the weight loss that they hope to achieve. Um, even in the best case scenario, so we might uh, imagine a scenario in which uh, the person does select a weight target uh, or, or a calorie target that is appropriate for their intended rate of weight loss. Um, at first, that's great, but usually over the course of a weight loss or a fat loss diet, we will see that total energy expenditure will decrease. And as a result, we're going to need to go in and actually change the calorie target as we go. Uh, in order to keep that person on the trajectory that they want, you know, so if someone wants to lose, uh, you know, one pound a week, uh, you know, at first they might get lucky and and select uh, kind of an assumed calorie target that does have them starting uh, at a rate of weight loss that is, you know, one pound per week. Um, that would be great, but over time, what they're going to find is, you know, as they start to lose weight, their body is going to be smaller. It's going to use less energy. Uh, they likely will run into some degree of metabolic adaptation, so an adaptive reduction in energy expenditure. So, you know, th th a, there's a good chance that when you use this approach, your starting target is simply not going to be appropriate to begin with. It might be too high, so you're not losing weight. It might be too low, and you're on way too restrictive of a diet. Um, but even if you get lucky and you start out with a great number, uh, the most likely scenario is that over the course of that diet, uh, the, the number that was perfect at the beginning is going to start to become less appropriate over time. Uh, so this approach of just picking a number and sticking with it for the entire diet, it's viable as long as you pick uh, an appropriate number to begin with. Um, but it, it, there is a lot of room for error and there's no built-in mechanism where you can really say, okay, at what point am I going to adjust it and how am I specifically going to adjust it? Now, the next uh, approach that people will take is to do an estimate. Uh, they, they will use previously validated equations to estimate their resting me metabolic rate. Uh, they will convert that to an estimate of their total daily energy expenditure, and then they will aim for a percentage of that value. And so, of course, if weight loss is the goal, you would be looking at a percentage that is less than 100%. Uh, you want your energy intake to be lower than your energy expenditure for a weight loss goal. So the way this works is there are a number of resting metabolic rate equations out there. And you know, a lot of times people will take that equation and they'll they'll put in some basic information. There's all sorts of calculators online. You can put in, you know, uh, usually body weight, sometimes biological sex, uh, sometimes a body fat percentage estimate, um, height. I mean, a number of demographic characteristics, you know, pretty basic stuff. And the equation will crunch some numbers and give you an estimated uh, resting metabolic rate. After that, uh, typically the process involves adjusting based on your physical activity level. So there are some published validated um, uh, correction factors where someone with a really high activity level is going to have a higher correction factor than someone with a really low physical activity level. So you are using one of these uh, equations that are based on very basic demographic information, very basic characteristics. You're using that to calculate your resting metabolic rate, or I should say to estimate your resting metabolic rate. You're multiplying by an activity factor, and that's going to give you an estimate of your total daily energy expenditure. So 
From that point, if you're trying to do a moderate cut, you know, not not super fast, not super aggressive, you might aim to eat 80 to 90% of your estimated total daily energy expenditure. So you would take your total expenditure, multiply it by 0.8 or 0.9, and that would be your calorie target starting out. Um, if you were doing a more aggressive cut, uh, then the, uh, the number you're multiplying by, the percentage of calories you're going for, is actually going to be lower, um, which, which is obviously quite intuitive. So instead of multiplying your total daily energy expenditure by 0.8 or 0.9, you're actually going to multiply it by 0.6 or 0.7. And of course, it's going to give you a much lower calorie target. So um, this is, in most cases, a better approach than the assume approach. The reason being is that the resting metabolic rate equations that do incorporate some individualized or personalized information tend to be better than these heuristics that are purely based on body weight alone. Usually you can get a slightly better um, prediction uh, when you're using one of these previously validated equations that, that at least incorporates some of your basic characteristics and demographic information. Um, and then, of course, another thing that, that makes this approach more suitable than the first approach is that it does ask you to give a decent assessment of your uh, activity level, your physical activity. So again, there is a slightly higher level of customization, but we still run into the very same challenges as we saw with the first approach. And, and that is, this is slightly more personalized and individualized but, but it's not quite customized. It, there's still a lot of room for improvement in terms of the level of individualization. These equations that are being used, the physical activity correction factors, they work pretty well for most people when you look at a huge group of individuals. It can give you a nice average value, but for a single person, a particular individual, uh, this approach generally is not going to be customized enough to get them to a really perfect target for them based on their intended rate of weight loss. Um, and there's actually a recent paper by Rodriguez and colleagues. Uh, this was out of Grant Tinsley's laboratory uh, down at Texas Tech University. And we've, we've talked about Grant Tinsley's work a lot. Uh, he is a really, really excellent scientist. I've, I've had the privilege of collaborating with him uh, many times, not on this paper, uh, so I'm not giving a biased assessment here. Uh, but this paper by Rodriguez and colleagues, I was reading through it the other day, and I wasn't very surprised by the uh, the initial, uh, you know, they, they were looking at a variety, a large number of different uh, validated equations for estimating resting metabolic rate, which of course is kind of the the first major step in this process. And some of the equations did okay, some did worse, that wasn't particularly surprising because that's something that we've already known for quite some time. Uh, but the thing that was interesting to me was they were looking at um, how well these equations would uh, basically account for increases in energy expenditure that occur during bulking, right? So I mentioned previously that during a weight loss phase, it's very common and it's very expected that we will see uh, energy expenditure go down, and there will even be an adaptive component where energy expenditure goes down more than we would expect based on uh, the changes in body composition alone. The inverse of that is true for bulking as well. And that is something we've talked about on the show. During weight gain phases, 
uh, energy expenditure tends to go up because we are just gaining mass. We're a bigger person who burns more calories. But above and beyond that increase, there often is an adaptive increase in energy expenditure. And this is the first paper that I'm aware of that, that kind of took this approach to looking at how a large number of these equations would do uh, in terms of trying to account for that adaptive change in metabolic rate. And the short answer is they didn't do particularly well. And so with this particular approach, uh, we still have some of the same problems as the first approach. It's not necessarily individualized and customized to the extent that we need. And even if it is, it'll be pretty good for a starting estimate, but over time, as there are adaptive changes in uh, energy expenditure, and as there are non-adaptive changes in energy expenditure just from losing weight over the course of a weight loss diet, it's very likely that even if you get very, very lucky and the first uh, estimate for your calorie target turns out to be very effective for your goal, over time, the effectiveness of that target should necessarily get worse and worse and worse. And with, within this approach, there's really uh, not a great way to account for that and to make sure that you're updating your target uh, in a way that is appropriate for your changes in energy expenditure. So that brings us to the third uh, approach that's really commonly used, which is to observe uh, how things are going and to make adjustments on the fly. It is an approach that takes a little bit more effort and a little bit more consistency in terms of weighing yourself, tracking your food and things like that, but it is perfectly customized and it offers you an opportunity to continue changing your diet based on how your body is responding. So the way you would do this is, um, you know, if you're already tracking your weight and your calories, you can use your best judgment for your starting point. So for example, um, you know, if you already know that you're eating 2,800 calories a day very consistently and your body weight is extremely stable, you have a pretty good... Uh, estimate right now that your total daily energy expenditure is 2,800 calories. You, you seem to be maintaining quite well there. Um, so that's really useful information. You already have a great opportunity of knowing where you need to set your calorie target to have a, you know, modest, moderate, or very aggressive rate of weight loss. So you already know the energy expenditure number that you're trying to, uh, to, to base your calorie target from. Um, now, if you're not already tracking your weight and your calories, uh, then you want to go ahead and use that estimate, that estimation method that I mentioned previously. So you'd use kind of a validated resting metabolic rate equation. You would use correction factors. And if you go to strongerbyscience.com slash diet, we do uh, kind of talk about what correction factors we think are best. Um, there's a set of correction factors that we developed for the macro factor diet app that we think are uh we believe they're a step up from the most common um, correction factors out there just because they're a lot more simple to use. They're a lot more straightforward. Um, so what you would do is you would use a validated equation. My recommendation tends to be the Cunningham equation from 1980 um, simply because it is um, uh, based on fat-free mass and uh, because it has there, there's empirical research indicating that it does quite well for, for um, resting metabolic rate estimates in the general population. Um, so people who might just be getting into fitness and, and are, do not have a, a prior history of a lot of exercise or weight training or anything like that. So um, 
it, it works really well in that particular population, but it also seems to work very well for very muscular physique athletes. Actually, uh, right out of Grant Tinsley's lab, they had a study where they compared a bunch of different validated equations for muscular physique athletes because um, obviously their their body characteristics are going to be very different. And so some of those predictive equations we talked about uh, are not going to be as effective for that population. So the Cunningham equation from 1980 is really nice because it seems to work very well across a broad spectrum of body composition ranges and across a broad spectrum of uh, muscularity levels and, and training status. So uh, what I would recommend if you want to do this um, and, and you really don't know where to start with your calorie target, I would say best way to do it, um, you know, we, we need to have an estimate of total daily energy expenditure. Um, and, and so the way we're going to get that, if you haven't been tracking your weight and your calories and you don't know where to start, what you're going to do then is use the Cunningham equation to get resting metabolic rate, use the macro factor, um, the uh, physical activity correction factors that, that we published. Uh, that will give you a pretty good starting point for your total daily energy expenditure. Uh, it's not going to be perfect, but with this approach I'm about to describe, it's completely okay. So what you're going to do is start with a calorie deficit that you think is going to be uh, large enough to get you on track with your intended rate of weight loss. So if you want to do a pretty moderate cut, you don't want to be super aggressive about it, uh, not in a big hurry. You want to make sure it's a really sustainable rate of weight loss. Probably want to start with losing 0.25 to 1% of body mass per week. If you want to go a little more aggressive, of course, then you could go above 1% of body weight per week. Um, and so if you use macro factor, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of logic built in in terms of helping you identify, okay, how big should that initial drop in calories be? But the, the nice thing about this approach, even if you're not using macro factor, is you make your first adjustment, you might drop your calories by 250, 300, maybe 500, 600 calories. You make this first adjustment uh, or, or, or you, you know, kind of aim for a deficit of that size and all you're going to do then is just monitor your changes in body weight. So you want to be really consistent about weighing yourself every morning uh, to, you know, to, the, to the extent that it's possible. You're going to miss some days here and there. And that's totally fine. But you want to also be as consistent as possible about your calorie intake. So let's say you start, you run these numbers, you say, okay, I think I'm going to start with a calorie intake of 2,300 calories per day. And I want to lose 0.5% of my body weight per week. You would set that calorie target. You would try to adhere to it uh, the best you can. And you would watch your body weight changing over time. Uh, and if you notice that you're losing weight uh, too slowly, then of course, you, after you give your body enough time to actually adjust to that calorie target, then you would say, okay, I'm, I'm really convinced that this calorie target is too high. I'm not losing weight quickly enough for my goal. I'm going to go ahead and do another incremental adjustment where I reduce my calories. Now, you might start out and say, okay, I'm, this diet feels really restrictive. I'm losing weight uh, much more quickly than I intended to. Uh, and because of that, you might decide that you want to actually revise your calorie target upward. You might say, this is going a little too fast. It's getting a little too restrictive too quickly. I know that I'm in it for the long haul with this weight loss phase. Um, so there's a little bit of guess and check that occurs. Now, I will acknowledge, uh, you know, 
we make macro factor. Uh, certainly we have a bias in terms of uh, we think it works quite well. Uh, one challenge that you can run into with this, this third approach is without good data smoothing, uh, your body weight might jump around a little bit and it might be hard to really understand with a high level of confidence what your actual trend in body weight looks like. When you see it bouncing around down two pounds, up one pound, up half a pound, down two pounds, it, it can be very uh, tempting to overreact to some of these short-term fluctuations or to simply really struggle to get a good sense of how your weight is truly tracking over the last week, the last two weeks, uh, or the last month. You know, kind of establishing that weight trend can be very difficult without the the help of, of a good software. Um, so, you know, from our perspective, you know, the nice thing about Macro Factor, if you choose to try it out, is it'll help you identify how big that initial uh, drop in calories should be. It'll help you identify an initial calorie target that should be uh, appropriate for a goal. And even if it isn't, it will continue to update based on your rate of weight loss or weight gain. And it'll it'll basically uh, continue to recalibrate and recalibrate. And over a pretty short span of time, usually only a couple weeks, Macro Factor can really hone in on your true energy expenditure and start to give you a, a calorie target that is very, very, very precisely in line with your intended rate of weight loss. And the best thing is, because it's constantly re-updating its understanding of your energy expenditure based on changes in body weight, changes in energy intake, um, you know, you might start with a really great target over time. You know, you might notice your energy expenditure is going down, rate of weight loss starts to slip. Macro factor will pick up on that based on your weight trend and it will make the adjustment so that your calorie target continues to be in line with the goal that you've set. Now, um, moving on to the next question. Around New Year's, there are a lot of people who are going into the new year, they're setting some new goals, and they are a little bit torn because you know they, they do want to lose some fat. So maybe it's not necessarily a weight loss diet, but they want to do a fat loss diet. But they also have a goal that involves becoming more muscular as well over time. So they want to lose fat and they want to build muscle. Uh, historically speaking, uh, or I guess, you know, traditionally, when you have a fat loss goal, typically you go into a caloric deficit. Uh, it's great for fat loss, not necessarily the best for optimizing muscle gain. Uh, and then, of course, the inverse is true when you want to really prioritize muscle building. Uh, you will typically go into a caloric surplus. You'll, you'll have a goal that involves gaining some weight. And it'll be great for building muscle, but it will not be very suitable for losing fat at the same time. Um, you know, and I'm talking about two extremes, but the reality is there's a spectrum. You know, there there are definitely instances where someone could uh, build muscle and lose fat at the same time. We don't necessarily have to dichotomize it and say, if you want to lose fat, you have to be in this huge calorie deficit and you cannot build muscle. And we don't have to look at the other end and say, if you want to build any muscle at all, you have to be in this huge caloric surplus that is going to be totally incompatible with fat loss. So that brings me to a question, which is, is recomping actually possible? And recomping is a kind of a fitness industry term that is now in the research literature as well. Recomposition refers to the process of simultaneously losing fat and building muscle. So when it comes to this question, 
is it possible to recomp? Is it possible to lose fat and build muscle at the same time? Uh, most people who are pretty familiar with the evidence would say absolutely it's possible um, because there is a great deal of research uh, indicating that people do it. But where it starts to get a bit uh, controversial, where you start to see differences of opinion, is when we actually really uh, refine the scope of the question. And we say, is recomping possible for people who are already pretty muscular and pretty well trained? Uh, and so that's a different question entirely. I think it's pretty uncontroversial to suggest that if someone is entering, uh, you know, if they're just getting into fitness and they really don't have a lot of muscle mass, um, perhaps they have uh, plenty of body fat to lose. When they start getting into fitness, they have ample opportunities to build muscle and lose fat. It's not going to take too much for them to build muscle. You know, we, we see some studies where, um, you know, people that are particularly inactive, they might actually gain a little, a little bit of lean mass uh, from walking interventions or low intensity cardio interventions. So if you're very untrained, it does not take a lot to have some degree of hypertrophy or muscle growth occurring. And then of course, you know, if you have plenty of body fat to lose, it does not take a lot to start to get body fat moving in the other direction and see some loss of fat mass. So if you ask someone, is recomping possible? Most folks will say, absolutely it is. But some folks will say, if you have really any resistance training experience at all, it's going to be very, very, very unlikely. And that is a perspective that I certainly understand, um, but I would also push push back against that. Um, and I think the best singular source of evidence that would contradict that position is a review paper by Barakat and colleagues. So Chris Barakat was the lead author of this. Um, he puts out some really excellent content, very, very good bodybuilder. Um, and in the article, it was a review paper and they basically said, hey, let's look for it. Let's see if we can find instances where people are really achieving recomposition, despite the fact that they were already resistance trained before the study began. And indeed, they do point to several different uh, instances where it has been documented uh, many times. And in fact, we're talking about effects that are documented at the group level. So it's not like there's one or two outliers in the sample who happen to do the unimaginable. We're talking about an average group level change that is totally compatible with a recomposition. So uh, what's really interesting about that review paper is they didn't just uh, provide very compelling evidence that it's possible. Um, they also showed that it's, it's not as rare as you might expect, and it occurs in a lot of different scenarios. And, and what I mean by that is it's not always in people that are losing weight and happen to gain a little bit of muscle in the process. There are instances where people achieve, resistant trained people, achieve recomposition when they are having a net loss of body weight. Uh, so basically, the amount of fat that they're losing, the mass of fat that they're losing is greater than the mass of muscle that they're gaining, but both are occurring, right? So it's a net weight loss, but they are recomping. Uh, of course, there are plenty of instances where people are recomping, but their body weight is staying very stable. So it's not really changing by more than half a kilogram in either direction. They are maintaining their body weight and it's basically like, hey, lose a pound of fat, gain a pound of muscle. You've recomped, but your body weight has stayed the same. You know, the, the example I mentioned previously of weight loss with recomp, 
that would be like losing four pounds of fat and gaining a pound of muscle, right? So the net effect is weight loss, uh, but recomposition has occurred. So they documented instances of recomposition in resistance trained folks who were losing weight, who were essentially maintaining weight, and even in people who were gaining weight as well. Um, and, and that's going to be a little bit harder to do if you're talking about really big changes in, in body composition. But absolutely, there are instances where someone might gain over the course of a study uh, two pounds of muscle and lose a pound of fat, right? And so in that case, you would say, okay, well, body weight has gone up, but fat mass has gone down. So there is the review paper by Barakat and colleagues that was looking more at group level data. But one thing that dawned on me recently um, people who have been following the show, following the website for a while, will remember that back in the day, we had a series of articles about the concept of P ratios and hypertrophy. And getting deep into that uh, topic is probably beyond the scope of this particular, um, this particular episode and segment. But what we were looking at is body composition changes in resistance training interventions but we were looking at individual level data from the studies. Uh, so instead of just looking at the group average, we actually gathered individual level data of all the individual participants. And what we were trying to do is kind of plot out the relationships and figure out within these studies, you know, what do these body composition changes look like? How does it re relate to uh, some very specific baseline characteristics? But it dawned on me recently when I was uh, covering this topic for an article that we have all this individual level data that we used for um, a participant level meta-analysis in that uh, series of articles about P-ratios. So we have, you know, as we were doing this participant level meta-analysis, we gathered all this individual level data. So we don't even need to rely exclusively on these group level averages. We can look at individuals and say, were there people in here who achieved recomposition while they were losing weight or who achieved recomposition while they were weight stable or who achieved recomposition as they were actually having a net gain in body weight? And indeed, within that um, large pooled data set uh, from all those studies that we included, there were, of course, examples of all of those different things, people recomping when they were losing, maintaining, or gaining weight. So we have pretty strong evidence, both at the group level and at the individual level, that uh, absolutely, people can achieve recomposition, but I don't want to be unclear about this. It is absolutely true that recomposition is more feasible for some folks than it is for others. Okay, so if you think about someone with a high potential for recomposition, so someone for whom really substantial recomposition is a high likelihood, they would have a certain set of characteristics. So first of all, they would be engaged in a resistance training program. If you want to have simultaneous muscle building and fat loss, of course, the first thing you want to do is make sure you're actually lifting weights during that process. Um, another uh, characteristic or factor contributing uh, is someone who is new to resistance training or has a relatively low level of muscularity. These individuals are more likely, uh, broadly speaking, to have the potential for substantial recomposition. Another characteristic is very high body fat percentage relative to the population average. If you have 
uh, you know, relatively more fat to lose, then recomposition seems to be a, a more feasible goal. Of course, if you're absolutely shredded, um, you know, your likelihood of losing fat and being able to support muscle gain at the same time is going to be severely inhibited. Um, another characteristic is it is very common to see uh, recomposition that occurs depending on overall energy status. And, and what I mean by that is recomposition tends to be very accessible for people who are uh, either weight neutral. So they're, they're, you know, eating a calorie intake level that is keeping their body weight pretty stable, or if they are um, having very modest changes in body weight. So for example, someone who is totally maintaining body weight, lifting, and they meet some of those other criteria or have some of those other characteristics, recomposition is a very feasible goal for the, for that type of individual. The same is true if they have a gradual loss of weight or a very gradual gain in body weight. Um, but what would be very uncommon, very atypical, would be having an enormous caloric deficit uh, and expecting considerable muscle gain at the same time. Uh, there was a meta-analysis uh, a while ago, probably about a year or so ago, where they looked at you know the relationship between an energy deficit and uh, the gains in lean mass that were observed over the, the duration of resistance training interventions. What they found was uh, you know deficits were not particularly helpful uh, as we would expect for building muscle because building muscle is an energy intensive process. We, we can really help it along by making sure we're providing plenty of calories and plenty of energy to fuel that, that energy demanding process. What they found though was you know for smaller energy deficits, it wasn't particularly uncommon to see muscle growth occurring. But as energy deficits got larger and larger, uh, as rates of weight loss and fat loss got larger and larger, uh, there started to be bigger impacts by which hypertrophy was attenuated. And so uh, if you were hoping to recomp and build muscle while losing fat, you would want to make sure that you're not in a massive, massive caloric deficit uh, as long as you can avoid that. Uh, and the opposite is true as well. Um, you know, if you are eating enough calories to fuel extremely rapid muscle gain, you know, really large amounts of muscle gain, it's going to be quite unlikely that you are also consuming a calorie level that is low enough to simultaneously facilitate fat loss. And so what we see is that if someone is gaining weight uh, very, very, very rapidly, it probably indicates that their, you know, their calorie intake is too high to be supporting the simultaneous loss of fat mass. Um, it's just going to be uh, very infeasible for a drug-free natural lifter to be rapidly gaining muscle, really large amounts of muscle while also losing fat at the same time. So uh, people who are new to lifting have higher body fat percentage and people who are not in a massive deficit or a massive, massive energy surplus, these are individuals who, as long as they're lifting weights, uh, have the highest possible potential for recomposition. Uh, and that brings me to kind of a sub-question, which is really, really common around this time of year. There are a lot of folks who say, okay, I know what my long-term goals are. I want to eventually be leaner than I am now. I want to have lower body fat, but I also want to have a lot more muscle than I currently have. What do I do first? Do I need to cut first? Do I need to bulk first? 
Um, should I recomp first? And the reality is it kind of depends. Um, and physiologically, there aren't a lot of wrong answers. Um, the, the first one that we've already covered is recomping. When someone is deciding whether or not they want to do a recomp phase or try to do recomp, uh, recomposition, they have to really seriously consider whether or not they're a person with really high potential for recomping. So if you're very, very lean, very well-trained, very muscular, it's probably going to be unlikely that you're making really dramatic recomposition happen. Uh, but, you know, if you meet some of the characteristics uh, that, that I discussed previously, it's quite possible that, that you can say, you know what, I don't know if I want to bulk first or cut first. Maybe I won't choose. Maybe I don't have to. Maybe I'll do recomposition. And when you do that, you're not going to necessarily maximize your rate of fat loss, nor are you necessarily going to maximize your rate of muscle gain. Uh, but you can make substantial, meaningful strides toward both goals at the same time. So for some people, that's an excellent option. For others, they want to know, should I cut first or should I bulk first? Because you know this this might be someone who uh, recomping is just not going to be a high probability endeavor for them. And physiologically, there's not really a right answer to that question. Um, you know, there have been people in the past who have said that if you get leaner first, it will increase your ability to put on muscle. Uh, our our series of articles about P ratios, uh, I think, casts a lot of very very serious doubt on that claim. I, I, I do believe that, uh, that 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 claim that getting leaner will help you build muscle uh, physiologically. I, I don't believe that that claim is is supported by the best available evidence. And in fact, I do believe it's contradicted by the best available evidence. Um, and, and so what that means, and you know, that there, there's really no physiological advantage of bulking and then cutting. Um, I mean, you, you could get into some arguments about uh, if cutting first would make you more predisposed to rapid regain of fat mass. Um, unless you're getting absolutely shredded, that's probably not as, uh, it's probably not a high priority consideration. It's probably not as pertinent of a concern. If you're just doing a really gradual, really sustainable fat loss phase, uh, if, if you have a really good plan in place, it's unlikely that you're going to be setting yourself up for very precipitous regain of fat after that's over. So from a physiological perspective, I don't really believe that there is a correct answer. And some people find that frustrating. They say, well, I wanted the right answer and now I don't have it. But in reality, the answer is that they're both right. They are both viable options, cut first and bulk later or bulk first and cut later. And what I usually recommend people do is think very seriously about which of the two is most exciting to you right now. Uh, I encourage people to think very, very deeply about their priorities, their sense of urgency for one goal versus the other. And I, I think when it comes to striving toward a goal, if you're really neutral and you say, well, I, you know, I, I, I equally want to get leaner and build muscle um, I know that I need to do both of these things, but you don't know which one to do first. Usually, if you follow the one that you are currently most excited about, in my experience, that tends to lead to the best outcome. So what I try to do is say, where is our intrinsic motivation currently lying? I mean, right now, deep down, are you more excited about losing fat or are you more excited about building muscle? Knowing that doing one 
to some extent comes at expense at the expense of the other in the short term, but you can get to the other one later in the long term. So what I usually encourage people to do when they're really saying, I don't know if I should bulk or cut or recomp, what I usually encourage people to do is first of all, let's figure out if you have a high likelihood of really substantial recomposition. For some people, it's not going to be that feasible of a goal. It might be possible, but it might not be a high probability outcome. And it might be the type of thing where they have the ability to gain half a pound of muscle and lose half a pound of fat. And to them, it technically recomp occurred, but it wasn't enough change in either direction to really get them excited. So we want to avoid that. Um, so then when you start saying, okay, well, I'm not going to recomp. Should I bulk or should I, should I cut? I usually tell people physiologically, it's not going to make that big of a difference. So what that means is you should probably do the one that you are most excited about at this exact point in time, and you can do the other one after the fact. Uh, And then of course, you know, you can oscillate back and forth between those. I, I generally discourage rapidly going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Um, You know, if we're talking about very, very short time scale. So I would not tell someone to go, two weeks of bulking, two weeks of cutting back and forth. It's possible. It's viable. You can do that. But I usually like to make sure that when I do a bulking phase, I can look back and say, I made big strides during that bulking phase. I like to say, I'm going to do this bulk for five months, six months, maybe nine months, maybe a year. You know, I really want to lean into this and commit to it and look back and say, I easily gained seven pounds of muscle. And the same is true for fat loss phases. I don't like to do a one-week cut or a two-week cut. I like to do it for months on end so that we can look back and say, wow, you know, we lost 25 pounds and that was a really, really successful approach that we took. As the first and only fitness podcast with a steadfast commitment to traditional family values, we know that protecting families is important. Right you are, Eric. But I will note, there are some things that are even more important than protecting traditional family values and the moral fabric of our society. That's right, Greg. It's important to protect families, but it's even more important to protect corporate entities. That's why I joined the advisory board for the Sports Nutrition Association, along with trusted fitness pros like Danny Lennon and distrusted arch nemeses like Eric Helms. The Sports Nutrition Association is the home of sports nutrition. They are dedicated to ensuring the sustainable prosperity of the sports nutrition profession, and they offer a unique pathway to robust insurance coverage for your sports nutrition business. Simply put, it's the best way to protect the corporate entities that are closest to your heart. And I should note, if you're an individual sole proprietor uh, providing sports nutrition services, and not a corporate entity, the Sports Nutrition Association can help you out as well. That is correct. All insurance plans are handled individually on a case-by-case basis, regardless of how your sports nutrition business is structured. But even if you don't want insurance coverage, SNA membership comes with a bunch of other perks and advantages. The Sports Nutrition Association is the only global professional sports body that has a defined standard for sports nutrition scope of practice for its members. This ensures that members maintain high standards in their practice so that the public can always trust in the quality associated with the services of an accredited sports nutritionist through the Sports Nutrition Association. If you already meet their minimum education requirements, you can become an accredited sports nutritionist today. 
Uh, if you don't meet those education requirements yet, you can enroll in the certificate program in Applied Sports Nutrition. That allows you to become a provisionally accredited member upon completion. To learn more about the Sports Nutrition Association, head over to www.sportsnutritionassociation.com today. Today's episode is sponsored by the Sports Nutrition Association and Stronger by Science LLC sincerely appreciates their support. Now, moving on, the third question that comes up a lot when we're talking about uh, weight loss goals and weight loss diets, uh, the third question is, how do I set and adjust my macro targets? Um, And so for this question, once again, I'm going to refer readers back to the diet article, strongerbyscience.com slash diet. Uh, That article, of course, covers uh, how to set a calorie target, but it also talks about macro targets how to set them, and how you might adjust them over time. Uh, So I want to begin with protein, and I'm going to keep this pretty brief because we had a fairly recent episode where I talked in a lot of detail about um, protein targets for building muscle and what my views are and why my views are that way. We we talked about how in the evidence-based fitness world, uh, in many cases, people uh, suggest that, you know, it's got to be 1.6 to 2.2 grams of protein per kilogram of body mass. 1.6 to 2.2 is by far the most common range you're going to see uh, in the evidence-based fitness world or another common one. Uh, so 2.2 grams per kilogram is equivalent to one gram of protein per pound of body weight. Of course, that's a very, very simple heuristic and simplicity is a good thing. And so I, 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 there's nothing wrong with the fact that these two recommendations are very prevalent and they are very compatible with, you know, if you're following those guidelines, you're eating enough protein to make really, really solid gains. So I, I'm certainly, I certainly would not question that. But uh, in the, the recent episode about protein requirements, I talked about how in many cases uh, we can make really good gains, really substantial gains without getting all the way up necessarily to that range of 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of total body mass. And another consideration I brought up is that Arguably, you could say it makes more sense to scale protein recommendations based on fat-free mass rather than total body mass. Now, I would not suggest that scaling to fat-free mass is a perfect system, but I do think it has advantages compared to total body mass, especially when you get into ranges of people whose body composition is very far from the population average or very far from the average that we see in the typical uh, protein study. So um, when body fat starts to get much lower or much higher than the average body fat within these studies, some of these targets start to lose their relevance and they start to become less and less appropriate. So when it comes to protein intake, I like to set it as categories. Uh, So possibly sufficient, probably sufficient, and almost certainly sufficient. And I like to scale them to uh, grams per kilogram of fat-free mass. So all the ranges I'm about to to discuss here for protein are scaled to fat-free mass. So possibly sufficient in my from my perspective is 1.5 to 1.74 grams per kilogram of fat-free mass. Now, that for depending on your body fat percentage, that might put you in the range of like 1.2 to 1.4 grams per kilogram of total body mass. So this is going to be lower than the most common ranges that you see out there. It might not always be enough to fully maximize your gains, but it should be 
more than enough to make really uh, satisfactory progress toward your goals. Uh, so you should be able to make substantial gains with that protein intake. The question is, will you necessarily make 100% of the gains that are on the table? The answer is maybe, but possibly not. So this is a recommendation uh, range that would make the most sense for someone who wants to make substantial progress toward their, their muscle building goals or, or their, their goals pertaining to retaining muscle during a weight loss phase. Um, so, but, you know, it, it would be most appropriate for someone who, like I said, wants to make uh, substantial progress or, or, you know, really effectively retain a lot of, of, of lean body mass or fat-free mass or muscle mass during a diet. Um, but it might not be the perfect range for someone who is really, really focused on optimizing that, right? So if it is an absolute top priority and you would be devastated to, to leave any gains on the table or devastated to lose any fat-free mass, then you might want to bump up into one of the higher categories. But if you're someone who really doesn't like eating protein, uh, you're not absolutely hyper-focused on optimization and pretty good or very good is good enough for you, um, you know, coupling that with your uh, lack of preference for a high-protein diet, it, it's a very uh, suitable protein range for, for that particular type of person. Now, let's say you don't mind eating plenty of protein. You'd like to make sure you're getting a little bit closer to absolutely you know, being certain that you're optimizing this process. Um, then you would take a step up and, and enter that category that I call probably sufficient. So that is an intake range of 1.75 to 1.99. For most people, this is going to get you most of the gains that are on the table. Um, there is some possibility that's not going to be quite high enough to fully optimize, but we are talking about getting the lion's share of gains or during a weight loss context, maintaining the lion's share of, of muscle mass and fat-free mass. So again, if you're someone who's you know, you don't have a complete distaste for, for higher protein diets, but you're not really enthusiastic about going really high with it, this would be a suitable range for that particular use case. And then finally, uh, the range that I call almost certainly sufficient. So this is 2 to 2.75 uh, grams of protein per kilogram of fat-free mass. And depending on your body fat percentage, this will probably, you know, for, for a lot of folks, this will put you in a range that's going to be around 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of total body mass. And so this is kind of getting into that better safe than sorry range for someone who is really adamant about optimizing muscle gain or optimizing the retention of muscle mass and really doesn't mind uh, consuming a pretty high protein diet. You know, So uh, it, it comes down ultimately to priority and preference uh, when you're selecting one of these kind of target ranges. Uh, and those are the factors you want to consider. How much do I like consuming a high-protein diet? And how adamant am I about optimizing and making sure that I'm taking a better safe-than-sorry approach when it comes to building or maintaining lean mass? Now, those ranges, you could argue that they should all be bumped up a little bit when you are cutting. And the magnitude of that bump is probably going to be dependent on how aggressively you're cutting and how lean you're getting. Uh, so what I mean by that is if you're doing like a pretty modest weight loss phase, uh, you know, really focused on losing fat, but not going super fast with it, you're not super lean yet, you might consider bumping all those numbers up by 0.2. So 1.5 becomes 1.7, 2.0 becomes 2.2. 
Uh, now, if you're going very, very aggressively, if you're in a really aggressive diet and you're very, very lean already. So what we're talking about here basically is if you are getting ready for a photo shoot, like a fitness model photo shoot, if you are getting ready for a bodybuilding competition or a physique competition, you're probably pushing pretty hard at the end and you're probably already very lean when you're pushing very hard at the end and pushing in terms of trying to get more fat loss to occur. Uh, so in that case, you might actually bump these targets up by instead of 0.2, you might bump them up by 0.35. So that that highest category, that almost certainly sufficient category would actually bump up. It would go from 2.35 to about 3.1 grams per kilogram of fat-free mass, which is a range that is very, very compatible with uh, the range from a systematic review published by the good doctor, Eric Helms. Um, I think it was back in 2014. Uh, it's been a number of years now, but uh, obviously Dr. Helms loves bodybuilding and uh, he published a systematic review looking at, you know, in that particular situation, not necessarily competitive bodybuilders, but shredded people who are trying to still get leaner and diet pretty aggressively you know, how much protein do they really need in order to uh, optimize their ability to retain muscle mass and fat-free mass? And it was higher than, than the typical range that you would need in order to just build muscle in a caloric deficit or something like that. And so that, that range that I mentioned, if we bump these numbers up by 0.35 and we settle on a range where if you want to be absolutely, you know, better safe than sorry, really focused on optimization it would go up to 2.35 all the way up to 3.1 grams per kilogram of fat-free mass. And so that gives a, a couple ideas of you know how you would go about setting a protein target. And then of course, the way that you adjust it is gonna depend on how your diet's going, right? So you might say that you wanna start out, um, you might be starting out with plenty of body fat to lose. Um, you might be starting out with a really conservative approach to weight loss, um, not pushing things too fast. So you're not, you're not super lean yet. You're not super aggressive with your dietary approach. And you might say, you know what, I'm going to start out about 1.8 grams per kilogram of, of fat-free mass. Over time, as your likelihood of losing lean mass accelerates, because you know maybe you're getting much leaner, starting to get pretty shredded, starting to get more aggressive with your, your approach to fat loss, you might find that over the course of your diet, you're actually pushing it upward a little bit and it's going up into the 2, 2.4, 2.8, even up, even, you know, maybe a little upwards of three grams per kilogram of fat-free mass. So we can see this kind of uh, natural incremental process that you could elect to take uh, as your diet progresses. Now, moving on to fat. Um, going to keep this one pretty brief. Uh, and there's a good reason for that. Uh, when you look at the literature on how low fat can go on a diet, this is the area where I think there is the least evidence to really lean on. Um, now we know that if you go too low with your fat for too long, you can run into some potential issues, right? So for example, one of the ones that comes up a lot is low production of sex hormones. So uh, we might see, for example, that testosterone starts to really drop off if we go very, very low with fat intake for a sustained, you know, long-term period of time. Uh, now, the problem with fat though, is if we go too high with it during a fat loss phase, this is going to displace other important nutrients, right? So if we 
if we're just really enthusiastic about having plenty of fat in a weight loss diet, that's okay. Uh, and there are people who have very successful weight loss on very high fat diets when you look at the ketogenic diet literature. Uh, but the problem is there uh, for a lot of folks, it's going to displace protein and carbohydrate in the diet to an extent that they're really not happy with. You know, if, if you're not really committed to a ketogenic diet and you, your fat is a little higher than it should be when you're dieting, you know, doing a weight loss diet, you might, you might start to really feel like you're missing out on some of the benefits of adding more protein or adding more carbohydrate. So the question is, how low is too low? And, and it really comes down to uh, a matter of perspective, right? So if, if you're talking about just avoiding short-term serious adverse events, you know, th that is something where you can look at the literature and you'll actually find some very, very uh, low fat intake. So for, I mentioned earlier in this episode, some of the clinical weight loss literature, you're going to see people on 800 calorie diets. And you can imagine th the fat intake is not going to be high, right? You got to get your protein in. There's going to be some carbohydrate. If you're on an 800 calorie diet, you, you just don't have enough calories to work with to, to, pretend that you're going to have some really, you know, high fat approach. So um, I have seen some literature indicating that in that specific use case of a medically supervised, very low calorie diet, there have been some, uh, some arguments in the literature of, okay, how much fat do we really need to have? And sometimes you'll even see numbers that get as low as 10 to 15 grams a day. Now, I would never recommend that uh, as a sustainable weight loss approach. I would never in a million years give someone a diet and say, yeah, 10 grams of fat a day, 15 grams of fat a day, perfect, that's fine. I would never go that low. I wouldn't feel good about it. I would have concerns about other things aside from just you know, really serious, acute adverse effects. I'd be starting to worry in the longer term about if we're just giving the body the nutrients that it needs, are, are we really eating enough fat to facilitate suitable absorption of fat-soluble vitamins? Are we taking in all the raw materials we need to support, you know, proper, uh, you know, building of, of, of cells themselves? Are we bringing in enough essential fatty acids to make sure that we've got uh, just our most basic nutrient needs being met? I would never, and, and then of course, like I said, the hormone um, element, you know, if, if you're going 10 or 15 grams a day for an extended period of time, um, that's going to have very, very predictable negative consequences on sex hormone production and circulating levels of sex hormones. So I would never go that low. And then the question is, well, how low would I go? So for most uh, weight loss diets, uh, a lot of times there's two ways to look at it. You could look at it as a percentage of total energy, or you could look at scaling it to body mass. Uh, and in this case, I'm going to go total body mass rather than fat-free mass just to be super clear about that. So normally, if I'm working with somebody, we're, you know, talking about a diet, I'd like for fat um, to the extent possible to be somewhere in the range of 20 to 35% of total energy. Now, if they just love a high fat diet, and they want to go above that, fine, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But usually 20 to 35% of total calories from fat is kind of a, a very comfortable zone for me. Uh, if we want to scale that uh, and just talk about grams per kilogram of body mass, because sometimes you will have people on really high calorie diets when they're bulking and say, well, that that range isn't really quite as critical anymore. If you just want to go and, and, you know, you start to notice that just to hit that bottom percentage, you might be having them consume more fat than they like to consume. 
Um, so you might instead say, well, let's talk about grams of, car, uh, grams of fat per kilogram of body mass. And usually I try to keep people in a range of 0.7 to 1.5 grams of fat per kilogram of body mass. Now, of course, there are going to be exceptions, um, especially if you're talking about a physique athlete uh, getting down really low in a diet, competition is coming up, you know, diets is getting really, really restrictive. Um, you know, you, you, you want to make sure that there's plenty of protein in the diet. Uh, so they're preser- preserving uh, muscle mass. You want to make sure there's plenty of carbs in the diet. So they're still able to train really effectively. Uh, you know, sometimes on the tail end of a contest prep, you are going to see it get down to 0. 0.6, 0. 0.5 grams per kilogram of body mass. That does happen. Uh, and then, and sometimes people just really like a lot of fat and you'll go above 1.5. But one of the most common questions I get about fat, aside from, you know, what's kind of the typical range during a cutting diet, you know, like I mentioned, 20 to 35% of total energy or, you know, 0.7-ish to 1.5 grams per kilogram of body mass, um, and sometimes going a little below 0.7 for short periods of time. But aside from those general ranges, sometimes people will ask me, okay, what, what is just the lowest that you will go? Because I said 10 and 15 grams, I'm not going there. It's not a number that I feel good about, not at all. Um, so my lower boundary and, and I have published this uh, in our, our diet article, what I like to do is base it on height. Um, and so it's all based on, it's relative to a height of 150 centimeters. So if you're shorter than 150 centimeters, the lowest I would ever really recommend going with fat, um, it would be 30 grams a day. That, that's the lowest that I would ever feel good about uh, saying, oh yeah, that, that, looks, that looks okay. Um, now, of course, you know, there, there are always uh, exceptions to that, but, you know, generally speaking, I don't like to go below 30 grams a day for just about anybody. Um, now, if you're above 150 centimeters tall, then there is an equation that you can use. So you would take your height in centimeters, you would subtract 150, you would divide that value by two, and then you would add 30. So for example, if you're 180 centimeters tall, subtract 150, you get a value of 30. You divide that by two, that's 15. You add 30, which is just a constant in the formula, 45 grams of fat would be your minimum. So whatever your height is, subtract 50, uh, subtract 150, divide that by two, add 30. And from my perspective, that's about as low as I ever like to go with fat. Now, where did that equation come from? It's not sitting there in a study, okay? It, this is me just kind of piecing together literature and trying to find a generalizable heuristic that seems to set a very good lower boundary for folks that seems to be compatible with the evidence that I've seen. So you're not going to be able to go out and find a singular study that says, we use this equation, it's the perfect formula, and everyone was better off for it. Um, this is kind of a, a heuristic that is informed by the evidence, but is not directly empirically validated, nor is it pulled directly from an empirical study in humans. Uh, and then finally, uh, the question, the next question would be carbohydrate. Um, you know, how high should it be when dieting? Normally with dieting, the approach I take is I start by setting a protein target. Then I set a fat target that is above that minimum and somewhere within that range I feel comfortable with. Uh, Protein is set, fat is set, and then the rest of calories are coming from carbohydrate. The reason I like to do that is assuming that you're lifting or doing some form of exercise and you want to do that exercise quite well, uh, if it's, you know, 
higher duration, higher intensity, anything that's really an intensity greater than a jog uh, and being done at a, at a considerable level in terms of the volume that you're doing on a weekly basis or the intensity. You know, if you're doing a lot of exercise, you probably want to make sure you're getting plenty of carbs in your diet. And when you're in a weight loss diet, you really want to try to make as much room for that as you can while still hitting your preferences for protein and fat. Now, there's a lot of debate among lifters about how much is enough for carbohydrate. Usually what I say is if you're doing a decent amount of glycolytic activity, like I said, an intensity greater than a jog, uh, you know, doing it for extended periods of time, if we're talking about cardio, uh, if you're doing, you know, bodybuilding type workouts or CrossFit type workouts or circuit-based workouts, you probably want to try to get plenty of carbs in your diet if you can swing it, if you have enough calories to work with. The number I like is somewhere between three and four grams of carbohydrate per kilogram of body mass. I like to keep it at three or above for as long as I can during a weight loss diet. And for someone who really prioritizes their high intensity exercise performance, or for someone who just really likes carbohydrate, I really try to squeeze as many carbs into the diet as I possibly can. But ultimately, calories are going to get low. Uh, that is the nature of dieting for weight loss. And so at a certain point, something's got to give. You're not going to get down into the, the later stages of a weight loss attempt and say, okay, I'm going to give up a bunch of protein and sacrifice lean mass retention just to kind of get extra carbs in. That's usually not going to be an advisable trade-off uh, for most cases. Same thing, if, you're, if your fat intake is already kind of at, at or near that lower level, um, you're probably not going to want to dip below that lower level just to kind of squeeze in more carbs. Usually what I do as a weight loss diet progresses is my protein will either stay where it is or it might drift upward a little bit depending on the circumstances. I usually early in the diet will start chipping away and taking calories away from fat rather than carbohydrate because I want to leave some of those carbs in the diet to the best, you know, to, to the best of my ability. At a certain point, something's got to give. <laughs> you know, protein is as low as you want it to be. Fat is as low as you want it to be. And the carbs are just going to have to give. And so sometimes I will get into situations where at the end of a really intense diet, especially in a bodybuilding context or physique athlete context, the carbs are just going to get pretty low. And it's just so we can preserve our protein and fat as much as we can. Okay, moving on to a, another question here. Question number four is how worried should I be about metabolic adaptation? This is a super prevalent common question uh, for people that are about to embark on a weight loss diet. And my answer, how worried should you be? The answer is not, not at all. Um, what I would encourage people to do in terms of metabolic adaptation is to be informed, but not worried, okay? Uh, and the reason for that, we've covered uh, metabolic adaptation many times uh, in articles, in podcasts. The most recent time that I've talked in detail about metabolic adaptation was actually uh, a podcast segment and an article about reverse dieting. You can find that article at macrofactorapp.com slash reverse dieting. And, you know, over the years, I first started... Uh, doing research on uh, metabolic adaptation probably in 2013, um, you know, and then published my first paper on it in 2014. 
And I've been talking about it and writing about it ever since. And my views certainly have evolved. Um, and, and the literature itself has, has evolved quite a bit. Um, even just looking over the last few years, uh, in particular, there's a researcher of the last name Martins who has published a number of very illuminating studies on the topic of metabolic adaptation. You know, back in the day, people were wondering uh, or in doing a lot of research on, you know, does metabolic adaptation exist? And the answer is yes. When people do weight loss diets, there is often an adaptive reduction in total daily energy expenditure that exceeds the reduction that we would anticipate based on changes in body composition. So there is an adaptive process happening. It is greater than zero, this kind of extra reduction in energy expenditure. It exists. And um, and, and the vast majority of folks are, are pretty solidly convinced of that these days. It's usually not a, de- uh, not a lot of debate about whether or not it, ex- it exists. The question is, what is its impact? How much does it matter? How much should a person be worried about it? And like I said, I don't think people should be worried about it. I think they should be informed about it. They should expect that it's going to happen. They should know that the magnitude of metabolic adaptation tends to be quite variable from person to person. So we cannot easily predict uh, exactly how big it's going to be. Um, but the most important thing is that it is constrained. It, it's, you know, you're not going to have 3,000 calories worth of metabolic adaptation. You're not going to reach a point where you're on an 800 calorie diet and you just cannot lose weight. Um, you know, there, there, there will always be a calorie number where further weight loss is possible. Uh, and, so, and so, yeah, sometimes people worry if metabolic adaptation has completely shut the door on their goals for weight loss. And the answer is virtually always no. Uh, you know, the door is not shut. There is still a calorie target that will be suitable for continued weight loss. So when we talk about metabolic adaptation, like I said, I I talk about it a lot in that reverse dieting article. And the important thing to understand is that metabolic adaptation exists and it adds a little bit of friction. And what I mean by that is when we look at a study and we actually separate out who are the people that experienced a lot of metabolic adaptation and who are the people that experienced very little metabolic adaptation there are differences, right? So the people who experience a lot of metabolic adaptation within a study uh, are likely to lose less weight over a fixed timeline. If everyone's doing the same intervention, the people who have the most metabolic adaptation often experience a little bit less weight loss over that timeline. It's not zero. They still have a tendency, especially in the study I'm thinking of uh, by Martins and colleagues, which I do cite in that article about reverse dieting, you know, they have shown, you know, the people with a lot of metabolic adaptation, you know, maybe they only lost 11 kilograms in the study and the people with a very minimal metabolic adaptation, you know, maybe they lost 14 kilograms, but everybody had a very successful weight loss process. But yeah, there was a little bit of extra friction where the folks experiencing more metabolic adaptation probably would have needed to make some bigger changes to get the same exact amount of total weight loss compared uh, you know, to people who were experiencing less metabolic adaptation. The other thing, another way to look at that friction in a different study by Martins and colleagues is that they, they did a study where they were just looking, you know, not at who loses more weight over a fixed period of time, but everyone has a particular weight loss goal that is, you know, standardized. So everyone has the same, the same general goal. 
And the question is, who gets there the most quickly? And so another way to look at that friction is that people who experience the most metabolic adaptation, it's not that they never got to that weight loss goal. It's that they needed a little bit more time, but we're only talking about a matter of a few weeks in most cases. So, you know, if someone were to say, hey, what is the worst case scenario for my metabolic adaptation? If I say, you know how you wanted to lose 14 kilograms in the next six months, you're only going to lose 11. You know, not ideal. It's not what they wanted to hear, but, but you know, that 11 kilograms is not nothing. It's not like metabolic adaptation has closed the door on a successful, uh, making successful strides toward the weight loss goal. Same thing. If someone said, you know what, you can still achieve the goal that you wanted, but because you experience kind of a higher than average amount of metabolic adaptation, you know, a lot of people could get there in six months, but it's going to take you seven. A lot of people would say, okay, not what I wanted to hear, but certainly not devastating, not a massive, massive issue. So um, one of the important things to keep in mind is, yes, metabolic adaptation exists. Yes, it can add friction to the process, but something that's really important to remember is that metabolic adaptation is not reliably predictive of weight loss success. So when they do these studies and they say, okay, we're going to do a one-year or a two-year or a six-year follow-up, you know, they do a weight loss intervention, they measure who had a lot of metabolic adaptation, who had very little, and then they look at, okay, one year after the intervention, who regained the most weight? Two years after, six years after, who is regaining the most weight uh, after these weight loss interventions? it is not the people who experience the most metabolic adaptation. Uh, it's very intuitive to assume that if you experience a lot of metabolic adaptation, you are going to end the diet with lower energy expenditure and you are going to be set up for a scenario where you are much more likely to regain a lot of, a lot of weight and a lot of fat very quickly. It, it's very intuitive to make that assumption but the empirical data the, in the controlled trials would indicate that is not the case. The folks who experience metabolic adaptation during that trial, it is not reliably predictive of their long-term success or their long-term ability to maintain the weight loss that they achieved. Uh, there are simply much more important factors that are predicting long-term weight loss success. Uh, adhering to sustainable lifestyle modifications. That is huge. Uh, eating behavior characteristics, you know, having a really positive relationship with food and being able to uh, implement dietary restraint in a very, uh, using flexible cognitive restraint, right? So being able to reduce and manage your calorie intake in a way that's sustainable and flexible and something that can persist in the long term. Uh, the incorporation of satiety promoting strategies, making sure that you're actually leveraging food selection as a key variable to help you out. So making sure that you're, you're doing a nice job during that weight maintenance phase of selecting food items uh, that generally speaking are supporting higher satiety and lower hunger. Uh, retaining lean mass actually seems to be a pretty reliable predictor of weight regain, and that might sound confusing, but there are now multiple studies indicating that people who lose more fat-free mass or lose more lean mass during a diet tend to regain more weight after that dieting phase is over. 
so if, if they look at like a one-year or a two-year follow-up period, the people who regain the most weight are the people who uh, lost the most fat-free mass during the actual diet. And there's pretty compelling evidence that uh, the loss of fat-free mass seems to independently be a driver of hunger. And so what, what is the most likely scenario is that individuals who are losing fat-free mass are experiencing heightened levels of hunger during that weight maintenance phase. Uh, and so as a result, they are more likely uh, you know, to be predisposed to greater amounts of weight regain. And fortunately, a high-protein diet during the weight loss phase coupled with uh, a, a good resistance training program can very strongly attenuate the loss of lean mass during a diet. Uh, two other things that are very helpful and actually are quite predictive of long-term success, regular self-monitoring. So just weighing yourself on a regular basis, just tracking your calories on a regular basis. It keeps you in touch with how things are going so that when body weight starts drifting up, when calorie intake starts drifting up, you notice it before there's been a substantial accumulation of, of, of fat mass or, or, or body weight. And so you can get in and kind of steady the ship before you feel like you've really uh, collapsed your motivation. You know, if you feel like you've thrown away a lot of the progress that you had previously made, sometimes that can actually be, have a really strong demotivating effect that causes this kind of snowball where you start to lose touch with some of the things that helped you lose that weight in the first place. And then finally, the, the other thing I wanted to mention was just plenty of physical activity. Uh, physical activity seems to be a very reliable predictor that supports um, the successful maintenance of a reduced body weight after a weight loss phase. And so if you're able to keep your physical activity level up, that seems to be a very, very helpful thing. Uh, and that seems to be reliably shown in the research. And physical activity, it's important to recognize it's not just lifting weights, right? So lifting weights, of course, is a really great way to get physical activity, but we're also incorporating non-exercise physical activity. So just being active throughout the day, getting a relatively high step count, uh, having a step count goal in the first place is another form of self-monitoring that should be helpful. So getting up throughout the day, limiting long periods of sedentary time, getting some steps in throughout the day. Resistance training, of course, is great. You know, structured cardio, of course, that's great as well. But physical activity can take a lot of different forms and frankly, can be a very, very enjoyable thing. You know, uh, physical activity doesn't have to be uh, being on a treadmill two hours a day. It can be taking a hike through a lovely park. It can be kayaking. It can be a lot of things that you genuinely love to do and simply keep you active. Now, a couple more here, uh, and I'm going to try to go through these a little bit more quickly uh, because they are kind of more niche topics, um, and they're topics that we've covered at length on the podcast before. Uh, number five here out of six when it comes to these common questions. Number five is, should I use nonlinear dieting strategies? And what I mean there is refeeds, cheat days, uh, diet breaks, um, maintenance phases, all these types of things that kind of break up the linearity of a weight loss phase. So instead of just going straight through having the same calorie target every single day and just, you know, gradually going down and down and down, sometimes people like to incorporate these nonlinear strategies where calorie intake actually goes up for a period of time, whether it's a day, two days, three days, 
could be a month, could be more than a month. You know, th th there are a number of different nonlinear strategies that involve temporarily increasing the calorie target and then eventually getting back to lower calorie targets and kind of oscillating back and forth. So first of all, refeeds. Uh, generally speaking, this is something that uh, most commonly is used in the physique athlete world, the bodybuilding world. A lot of times during prep, people will have one, maybe two, sometimes three days a week where they bump up their, um, their calorie intake, mostly from carbohydrate. Uh, from my perspective, looking at the, avail the available literature, sometimes this is framed as something that is going to attenuate metabolic adaptation. I used to have higher hopes that that might be the case. As more data have become available, I am losing optimism in that particular outcome. I'm much more inclined to say that refeeds are mostly for two outcomes. One would be performance in the gym. The other would just be having a little bit of variety during a tightly controlled diet. You know, so for example, you might have a physique athlete who's on really low calories and they say, hey, if I could just have one or two days a week where there's a little more flexibility in the diet, psychologically, that would be a really helpful thing to me. That would be a very, very uh, valid reason to incorporate refeeds. Another would be you have a physique athlete who's training legs twice a week and their legs are kind of their weak point. They really are trying to make sure that they bring that muscle group up or maybe they're just, you know, they need to make sure that they're maintaining everything they got uh, as their prep continues. Theoretically, you could strategically use those refeeds in close proximity to the most critical workouts of the week so that they're going into the gym feeling very well fed, very energized, and they can really give it their best effort uh, in those specific workouts. So I think there are some psychological benefits. Uh, I think there are some benefits pertaining to just kind of acute enhancements in performance, but are, you know, is having one or two refeeds a week going to totally keep metabolic adaptation at bay? Probably not. Is it going to meaningfully affect the proportion of weight that is lost as fat mass versus fat-free mass? Probably not uh, in terms of a global perspective, but if you can enhance a couple key workouts per week, perhaps there's a regional effect where you're able to hold on to a little bit more lower body mass because you strategically put your refeeds near your lower body days. There, there's some possibility of that, but we're really mostly talking about psychological advantages and performance advantages that are very acute in nature. We're not talking about uh, blunting metabolic adaptation to a meaningful degree. Next would be cheat days. Um, very, very common in the fitness world. Um, I wrote an article all about them, so I'm not going to get too into the, the details about cheat days. Um, if you go to macrofactorapp.com slash cheat meals, uh, I talk all about the shortcomings and the issues you might run into if you're utilizing a lot of cheat days or cheat meals. And what I do is I offer what I consider to be a better alternative uh, based on the evidence available. So uh, I do believe that what we would call a planned hedonic deviation offers all of the purported upsides of a cheat day, but with uh, much fewer downsides. I, I, I do very strongly believe that a planned hedonic deviation is meaningfully different than a cheat day and also meaningfully better than a cheat day. And what we're doing with a planned hedonic deviation is for, for psychological reasons or just for lifestyle flexibility, we are consciously allocating a little bit of extra calorie intake to a particular day. So a great example would be 
if there is a particular social activity uh, where you want to have a little more dietary flexibility, you can build that into your weekly plan. Uh, you don't feel like you're cheating on your diet because it it is literally built into the diet and planned for and accounted for. Uh, so I do think that planned hedonic deviations are much, much more favorable, and they are purely for psychological benefit, lifestyle benefit. Now, the next one would be diet breaks or intermittent maintenance phases. Uh, and the distinction there is arbitrary. So a diet break could be as long as you want. Normally in the fitness world, they might be one week or two weeks, but theoretically it could be as long as you want. And so when does a diet break become so long that you just call it a maintenance phase? I don't know. It could be a month or two months, who knows? But basically what we're talking about here is you are pausing the diet essentially and bringing your calories back up to a maintenance level. So you're losing weight, losing weight, losing weight. You bring them back up and you just stabilize weight for some predetermined period of time. It, I guess it doesn't necessarily have to be predetermined. You might say, hey, I'm going to do a diet break and I'm going to resume a weight loss phase or kind of get back into a caloric deficit when I feel ready. So that certainly is an option. Now, the question is, is there a physiological advantage here that makes diet breaks more effective for fat loss, uh, more effective for, uh, you know, attenuating or preventing metabolic adaptation. There was one study called the Matador study that is the most promising evidence that would suggest that there is a physiological advantage where diet breaks enhance fat loss and diet breaks attenuate metabolic adaptation. It was a very good study. It was done very well. But when you look at the results, uh, numerically speaking, quantitatively speaking, it's a virtual certainty that the differences uh, caused in terms of total daily energy expenditure, metabolic rate, all that stuff about metabolic adaptation, the effects on metabolic rate were not nearly large enough to describe the differences between groups where the diet break group, for some reason, lost a lot more fat than the group that just did a diet straight through. Uh, the most likely scenario is that the advantage was behavioral, psychological, just, just providing more flexibility in the diet and giving people an opportunity to pause, take their breath, get out of that deficit, and then re-enter at a later date. Um, so when we look at the totality of the evidence on diet breaks and maintenance phases, um, there seem to be some small benefits uh, for some people in terms of the amount of weight lost over the course of a uh, over the duration of an intervention. But the main benefits appear to be psychological more than anything. It seems to be uh, something that is psychologically and behaviorally advantageous in a way that supports dietary adherence. So it's increasingly, the, the more that research comes out, and I actually had, had a, the opportunity to collaborate on a diet break study, uh, and I've been really tapped into this literature for the last few years. Uh, when we look at that literature very closely, uh, what you know, the, the more that you look at the totality of it, it's very difficult to suggest that uh, diet breaks or maintenance phases are having some huge physiological advantage or some huge advantage where they are totally blunting metabolic adaptation. It appears that they are tools that can help with psychological aspects of dieting and they, they can help with dietary adherence. That seems to be the primary benefit that we're observing in the literature 
the physiological benefits are very hit and miss and hard to really have a lot of confidence in at this point in time. And that that is uh, an area where my perspectives have really changed over time, uh, the more that I've been involved in that research. So I, I used to have a lot of hope that diet breaks would really effectively attenuate metabolic adapta- adaptation over the course of a weight loss diet. Um, now I view them more as an adherence tool, a behavioral tool, and a psychological tool. But it's really critical to remember that from a psychological perspective, diet breaks and maintenance phases will be very beneficial to some individuals and can actually be counterproductive for others. And the reason I say that is because there are a lot of folks who once they get some momentum going and they see that they're achieving weight loss and weight is going down and down and down over time, when you disrupt that momentum and say, hey, now that we've got weight loss rolling, let's stop and let's not be losing weight for a little bit. Sometimes that disruption of the momentum can be a very demotivating thing. And the dieter can feel like they are continuously getting pulled back and forth and back and forth, uh, weight loss, weight maintenance, weight loss, weight maintenance. It could be very, very tiring, fatiguing, frustrating. And it will seem like the second they get things going in the right direction, they're pausing again. For some individuals, it can actually backfire and be psychologically um, counterproductive, okay? And so that's something that's really important to keep in mind. Uh, If you are thinking about using diet breaks or maintenance phases, you want to think very carefully about your psychological makeup. You know, you, you have to know yourself. Or if you're a coach working with a client, you have to know your client and say, is this going to be something where they really enjoy the enhanced flexibility and it makes this diet just a little bit more flexible and enjoyable? Do they need a little break every now and then just to kind of pause, take their, you know, catch their breath and then keep going? Or is this the type of client where once we get the motivation going, the best thing we can possibly do is keep it going? So there are some clients where a a diet break can be an extremely valuable tool. And there are some clients where it is not the right tool and it can actually backfire more than it helps. Um, The last thing I want to address here is something that's been asked very, very frequently lately. And the question is, how long can you do a cut or a weight loss phase before you need to either do a diet break or a maintenance phase or even switch to a bulking diet? Like how long can you do a cut or a weight loss phase continuously? And I know that a lot of folks that I have a lot of respect for have put out heuristics of, you know, maybe you should only cut for this many weeks at a time or that many months at a time. And um, that's okay. You know, I'm not trying to be hypercritical in this uh, segment, but I've never seen convincing evidence to me that would indicate that there's any cap on how long you can do a successful weight loss phase. Uh, As long as you are taking an incremental approach and you're adjusting your calorie target over time to make sure you're facilitating a suitable and sustainable rate of weight loss, I don't see any reason to really put a time constraint on how long a dieting phase can be. And so when people ask me, how long can I cut before I have to switch things up or take a break? I say literally as long as you want. There's, from a physiological perspective, there's really no such thing as needing uh, a break from from this kind of weight loss diet. So um, there are folks who, you know, they might give heuristics and say, 
you should only diet for, you know, three months or four months or five months at a time, because just from a practical perspective, you're going to be over it. <laughs> you know, you're, you're going to say, hey, I need to take a break here. I'm a little bit burnt out. So there are some heuristics that I think are just being dictated by, you know, for most people, what seems to be an enjoyable weight loss experience. But when it comes down to just pure physiology, is there a cap on how long a diet phase can be? Based on all the evidence I've seen, the answer would be no. You can keep going uh, to the extent that you wish to. And for a lot of folks, I say, hey, when you've got momentum going and you still have fat that you want to lose and things are going well and you want to keep going further, there's no reason that you should feel like you're unable to keep going further. As, you know, as long as you're doing things in a healthy and sustainable way, you're more than welcome to keep going. And now, the final question I want to address and this one will be a bit brief because it's something that has been a pro, uh, it's something that's been covered on the podcast in just an aggressively long segment. Uh, th- this was one of those segments. I think it's my my worst ever estimate of how long I thought a segment would be versus how long it, it ended up being. Uh, I think I probably went for a good hour and forty minutes talking about reverse dieting, and I really believe that I could wrap that thing up in about thirty minutes or so. Uh, so hey. My mistake. I was wrong on that. But the good thing is, if you want to really deep dive into reverse dieting, that segment and the the corresponding article take a much deeper dive than anyone would possibly want to see. So um, the, the sixth and final question I want to address in this particular episode is, should I reverse diet? And people are going to ask that for, for in many different circumstances. So should I reverse diet? before I do a cut? You know, do I need to prepare my metabolism for a successful cut? Uh, Another question is, do I need to reverse diet after I complete my weight loss goal? Is this like a mandatory or necessary or extremely advantageous strategy to transition from a weight loss phase into a long-term maintenance phase? So those are the two most common applications of this question should I reverse diet? So the question, should I reverse diet before a cut in order to kind of prepare my metabolism and, you know, theoretically make that diet a little easier, make it so that I can diet on higher calories than I otherwise would be able to? Uh, My answer to that would be no. Uh, I do not think that you need to reverse diet before a cut. Uh, And of course, like I said, I've, I've gone into a lot of detail elsewhere about that, but There are a number of points uh, to be made here. Number one, uh, your resting metabolic rate or your total daily energy expenditure at the start of a cut does not seem to be reliably predictive of weight loss success. So it is not true to say that if you could only get your metabolic rate higher, then we can say that you, you you should be more successful in a subsequent weight loss phase. That claim doesn't seem to be very compatible with the available evidence. Uh, another question or another point to be made, I should say, is that having higher resting metabolic rate or total energy expenditure at the start of a cut does not necessarily mean that you will maintain a higher metabolic rate or energy expenditure throughout the entire cut. So just because you're able to theoretically do some overfeeding or reverse dieting that starts to cause your energy expenditure to go up before a diet, any progress that you're making in that regard, Uh, the evidence would suggest that is not going to be a durable change. You're not going to be able to increase it before the diet 
and then have that increase persist as you transition into a weight loss phase. What we tend to see in the literature is even if you were able to have a high work your metabolic rate higher before the diet, the second that you go into a caloric deficit and a weight loss phase, there's no reason for us to believe that any gain in metabolic rate would actually persist and survive that transition as you get into the next weight loss phase. That the increase in energy expenditure that we might observe during an overfeeding strategy, if we want to call it reverse dieting, that seems to be an extremely short-term, extremely transient effect. And once you exit that, that overfeeding or reverse dieting strategy, it goes away. It vanishes. You don't get to just hang on to that forever. Um, and, and then finally, what we notice is that, um, you know, when we talk about people with thrifty metabolic phenotypes, these are people who experience the most metabolic adaptation, the largest drops in energy expenditure over the course of a diet. They actually tend to have resting metabolic rates before they diet when they're just at, you know, neutral energy balance stable body weight, their metabolic rate and energy expenditure tends to be as high, if not higher, than folks who have less thrifty phenotypes. So the idea that you need to get your metabolic rate up to start with, and that's going to protect you from a drop when you transition to a dieting phase, like I said previously, uh, that doesn't seem to be compatible with the literature having a high degree of metabolic adaptation or a particularly thrifty phenotype is all about how your body responds to the change in energy status when you go from positive or neutral to negative energy balance. So uh, what we find is people with thrifty phenotypes, people who experience uh, the greatest degree of metabolic adaptation, they have smaller increases in energy expenditure during overfeeding. So they're actually less likely to build up their metabolic rate uh, during a reverse dieting type protocol. Um, so it's probably not going to work very well, even when they're trying to overfeed. They're going to be more likely to simply just gain some fat during that reverse dieting process. But they're going to have highest likelihood of fat gain during that process lowest likelihood of any meaningful increase in energy expenditure. And even if they did, the second they transition over into a deficit, that is when we're going to see a, a pretty substantial drop in energy expenditure. And so there's really no evidence to suggest that reverse dieting before a cut is going to make that cut uh, more successful. And it is least likely to help the individuals who would theoretically want it the most. Now, the other question, like I said, is after I complete my weight loss goal, um, is that a time where I need to reverse diet? Uh, you know, is, is this uh, something that is going to help me transition uh, into a more successful long-term maintenance phase after my cut is over? And once again, the answer uh, quite simply is no, from my perspective. Um, in that article, in that podcast segment, I go into a lot of detail about the relevant research pertaining to this question. Uh, the short version is there's really no evidence that it's physiologically advantageous to do this reverse diet as a transition into maintenance. Again, physiologically, one might say that there are potentially behavioral advantages to that, and that's that's totally fine. Um, but but we don't really see any physiological advantage where reverse dieting to maintenance would be any better than just going straight to maintenance calories and, and hanging out there. Uh, there's also some evidence that 
you know, if you want to make the claim that this is going to help uh, build up metabolic rate, or you want to make the claim that this is going to help uh, ensure that a person maintains a leaner physique in the longer term, uh, there's actually evidence that would, uh, in my opinion, directly contradict that set of ideas. Uh, probably the most striking evidence is in the, um, the the Minnesota starvation experiment. So what they did was they um, put a number of individuals through a, a really aggressive semi-starvation protocol and a small subset. What they did was uh, in the controlled refeeding period after the weight loss phase, and these individuals got very, very lean. You could probably tell from the name of the study, starvation experiment, right? But uh, after the weight loss phase, there is a refeeding phase. The first phase was actually very well controlled. And then they said, okay, the controlled refeeding phase is over. Now you're just left to your own devices. You can self-select what you're going to eat and kind of eat to your, your heart's content, you know, whatever you see fit. And so in that controlled refeeding period, they had several different rates at which calories were increased. And there are two really important uh, observations from that experiment when it comes to reverse dieting. First of all, the individuals who were given the pretty slow rate of reintroduction of calories, the, the uh, protocol that would look most similar to what most people call reverse dieting they were really struggling to physiologically recover from the prior diet. And so the, the researchers said, hey, this is way too slow. These folks are not physiologically recovering from the diet the way we had hoped. We're not stimulating enough recovery. We actually need to start speeding things up. So they actually changed course during that controlled uh, refeeding period. Now, during that controlled period, even after they changed course, you know, they had these four different levels of, you know, the rate of caloric reintroduction. And the folks who introduced calories very quickly, of course, they, they gained considerably more weight than the individuals who did a slower and more gradual reintroduction of calories. But what was really interesting was what happened after they just reverted uh, back to their, their typical kind of self-selected eating habits. The folks who went slower and essentially did reverse dieting and essentially worked quite hard to, well, it wasn't their choice necessarily, but the people who did the work required to not regain a lot of weight in that initial refeeding period, the moment that things became less controlled and they were kind of determining their own intake, they caught up with the other groups, uh, with the other individuals. So they were able to delay the fat regain because of the protocol they were doing. But once that reverse dieting phase ended, they very quickly caught up and ended up with, with a similar uh, level of weight regain and fat regain when compared to the folks who said, whatever, let's just go ahead and ramp these calories up really quickly. So physiologically, there was no advantage that, that would have enabled those individuals to use a protocol like reverse dieting to set themselves up for a more success, a more successful maintenance phase, or a leaner long-term physique after that weight loss was achieved, and then finally, um, one of the main points I make in that article and in the subsequent podcast segment is that you know there's two options that I compare here. One is reverse dieting; the other is just simply jumping straight to a maintenance calorie intake that puts you at neutral energy balance. What we see is that the mere transition 
of going from a caloric deficit to neutral energy balance or energy maintenance or, or weight maintenance, I should say. When you go from a deficit to neutral energy balance, in many cases, we will start to see that some of the metabolic adaptation, the reduction in energy expenditure will start to reverse itself. Not because you're forcing it to by making small incremental changes, but it is simply a natural thing that occurs when you go from negative energy balance to neutral, when you go from an energy deficit to maintenance. And so one of the points that I argue and I present a number of calculations and, and citations to support this is simply jumping to maintenance accomplishes the thing that a lot of people are trying to do with reverse dieting. A lot of people, after they finish a diet, they say, I want to really build up my metabolic rate so that I'm able to consume higher calories throughout this maintenance phase. And what we see is if they just jump to maintenance, they might find that over time, energy expenditure creeps up a little bit. And then they, they might say, yeah, okay, I jumped to maintenance, but since some of those metabolic adaptations unraveled, my energy expenditure actually started to creep up. So now I can increase my calories again, just to kind of stay at maintenance rather than being in an energy deficit again. You basically have to, uh, in many cases, incrementally bump your calories up just to stay at maintenance because uh, metabolic adaptation starts to kind of reverse itself when you go from negative to neutral energy balance. So to me, the big, uh, very pervasive myth about reverse dieting is that people are manipulating their energy expenditure or that they are forcing it up by doing these very small, meticulous, nuanced changes in energy intake. In reality, you can make a much stronger case based on the evidence and the physiological rationale that what is happening is if they had simply jumped to maintenance, met, you know, metabolic rate energy expenditure probably would have started to creep up just from doing that. And then they would have to increase their calories again just to, to keep up with where their maintenance is. And that process would play out over time. And they would look back and say, you know what? I incrementally was increasing my calories. It looks like I was reverse dieting, but those incremental increases in calories were not causing metabolic rate to go up. They were happening because metabolic rate was going up. And in order to maintain neutral energy balance, they had to just kind of keep reacting by increasing their calorie target a little bit. So um, the, all of that is to say, if you're really excited about reverse dieting um, and you really want to do it, I have no interest in taking the wind out of your sails or, or trying to convince you that that it's a lost cause or that it's uh, you know there's some futility associated with this. I I do not think it's an evidence based approach that that would have physiological benefits. But I no one stands to benefit from me just simply demotivating people about an intervention that they're excited about trying. So uh, if you want to try reverse dieting, there's certainly nothing wrong with that and. As long as not, you're not keeping yourself at very, very low calorie intakes for an indefensibly long period of time, generally speaking, there's just there, there's there's not really significant downsides in most common applications of reverse dieting. So I, I think the evidence is quite weak uh, if you're trying to support reverse dieting. I actually think reverse dieting is uh, quite contradictory to the evidence that's available, but you know, in terms of all the interventions out there, as like I said, as long as you're not staying at a really low body fat and a very low calorie intake 
for an indefensibly indefensibly long period of time. There's nothing wrong with saying, you know what, I don't know if reverse dieting is going to work, probably isn't, but I'm going to try it because it interests me and I'm excited about it. If you want to do that, that's completely fine. And in fact, within MacroFactor, in our knowledge base, we do have uh, a bit of information that says, hey, we don't really think reverse dieting works in the way it's it's often uh, claimed to work or or the way that people market it uh, in terms of what it's supposed to be doing. We don't really believe that based on the evidence, but you know, within macro factor, you know, because of that, we're not really comfortable saying here's a reverse dieting feature or function because we, we feel like we would be saying, Hey, here's a thing that we don't believe works. Go ahead and try it. Right. But we do have information in the knowledge base that says, if you're interested in this and you want to do it, here's a step-by-step guide on how you would actually set that up within macro factor. Uh, so the way that we designed the app was to be really supportive and make sure that we were empowering people to uh, to do the intervention that they really want to do, uh, pursue the goals that they want to pursue. All we try to do with the app is is have really non-judgmental guidance uh, along the way, which is one of the reasons that we we often refer to it as a diet sidekick. It's something that is supposed to be supportive along the way. Um, and so if, if you want to do reverse dieting, the app, of course, there's still a way for the app to support you very effectively in that endeavor. Uh, so that wraps it up for this episode. Um, it was a little different. This is a different type of Stronger by Science podcast episode. I certainly hope that you've enjoyed it and I hope that you've gotten something useful from it. I, I My intention with this episode was that whether you are just getting into fitness or you're a seasoned veteran or perhaps there are people that you care about who are just getting into fitness uh, as the new year begins, my hope is that you could get something useful from this episode or share it with somebody who might get something useful from it as well. I I know a lot of times there are, you know, for a lot of fitness enthusiasts, myself included, there are people in our life who, uh, as, as the the new year comes around, they start to say, Hey, I'm actually starting to take a bit of an interest in this fitness stuff. Where do I get started? My hope is that, you know, this podcast might be a a good resource for someone to kind of sort through, how do I get started? How do I get rolling? What are some common questions? And and more importantly, what are the answers to some of those common questions? So uh, I I very much do hope that you enjoyed it and hope you got something useful out of it. Uh, Our series will continue as we talk about uh, various ways to, uh, to kind of start the new year on the right foot. Uh, just recapping, we've talked about goal setting, motivation, behavior change. At this point uh, with this episode, we've talked about some of the most common questions about weight loss diets. Uh, Moving forward, we're going to talk a little bit about cardio for weight loss. We're going to talk about what mindful eating is and how it might be incorporated into an evidence-based eating strategy. Also going to talk a little bit about the importance of sleep. Uh, Sleep is something that you really shouldn't sleep on. It's, It's a very important variable. Um, and a lot of times, you know, we get convinced that we can just push through a lack of sleep and pretend that we're unaffected by it. But when it comes to fitness goals, as we'll talk about, sleep can be a really, really critical component of a well-rounded approach to optimizing your fitness progress. So sleep is not always easy to manage. It's not always easy to control. If we have sleep issues, sometimes there can be really, really big challenges that prevent us from getting more sleep. Uh, But nonetheless, we're going to talk about why sleep is important and strategies for supporting really good sleep. So 
Uh, That does it for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back soon with another episode. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.